0: Prime Matters presents From Shadows into the Light, a Holy Week Retreat by Monsignor James P. Shea, President of the University of Mary. The reflection on the gift of faith in dark times was first delivered during Holy Week in the midst of the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. Primematters.com is a groundbreaking project of educational outreach of the University of Mary. Awakening the Catholic Imaginative Vision Tuesday of Holy Week The Coming of Christ, God's Surprising Rescue Mission A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good brothers and sisters, having already spent time together considering what it means to have faith in the midst of a pandemic and giving thought to what faith truly is, tonight I wanna speak with you about the events that lie at the center of our faith, the coming of Christ, God's surprising rescue mission. We all know the heart of the good news, the human race created by God for happiness and union with him had become estranged from him by their resistance to his plan and had brought spiritual death upon themselves. But God in his mercy did not allow this situation to stand. He determined to save humanity. One of the most comforting titles of God is that of Savior. The scriptures never stop talking of this charisma, this proclamation of salvation. Here is one expression among many in the way St. Paul wrote about it to the Ephesians. God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We grow used to the story of our faith, and we forget that Christianity is the most shockingly momentous view of what it means to be human that has ever been seriously believed or pursued. The weight of this momentousness is both thrilling and, in a sense, terrifying. Much of the modern flight from Christianity, when it does not come from boredom with a watered-down conventional version of the faith, is precisely a flight from the seriousness of existence at the heart of the Christian vision. It's a refusal to accept to scale the heights that all men and women are called to in Christ. In the Christian vision, to be a human is to be involved in an extraordinary adventure. The greatest adventure stories ever written are only echoes of it, pale shadows of what the lowliest human is in truth undergoing in his or her life right now. This drama began before we were born and will continue after we die, and each of us has been given a unique role to play in it. An essential aspect of this drama, as we have been saying these past few days, is that we have been born into an invisible world as well as as a visible one. And the invisible world is incomparably more real, more lasting, more beautiful, and larger than the visible. Our blindness to that invisible world represents much of our predicament. We are caught by the illusion of the merely seen and need to have our blindness cured. This drama involves us not only with the awful and marvelous and incomprehensible being of God who created us with a decisive purpose in mind, but also with a cosmic struggle among creatures of spirit more powerful than we are, who influence human life both for good and evil. We have been born into a battle and we are given the fearful and dignifying burden of choice. We must take a side. Every human has been created for a magnificent destiny that makes the greatest prizes of this world seem like uninteresting nothings, a destiny of such height that the imagination can hardly take it in. Not only are we meant to know good things, happiness, strength, Length of existence, but we have been created to experience the unthinkable, to share in the very nature of God. Created from the passing stuff of the material world, fused with an invisible and immortal soul, we are each of us meant to become what we would be tempted to call gods, creatures of dazzling light and strength beauty and goodness, sharing in and reflecting the power and beauty of the infinite God. Yet, our destiny is at great risk. Had it not been for the intervention of God himself in our history, by a shocking act of humility and love, our divine destiny would have been lost to us by our own pride and rebellion. Individually and as a race, we had sustained a mortal wound and forfeited our original purpose, becoming enslaved to evil spiritual creatures who themselves had turned their backs on goodness and and light and God, and had become deformed and filled with malice. The true history of the human race has been largely hidden. Events of great significance take place away from the eyes of the world. By many orders of magnitude, The most important event in history was the coming of God himself among us in human form. He came not only to teach us truth, but also to do battle for us against the powers of darkness and having conquered them to revivify us, to bring us back to life individually and as a race. He gave his life as an offering to bring us back from the dead and to adopt us into his own divine nature. It was an event hardly noticed by the powerful and wealthy of the time. Most knew nothing of it at all. And those who did treated it as of little importance. But that event has since come to echo through every corner of the world. This pattern continually repeats itself. The same hidden momentousness is true in the history of every individual human being, the real importance of human life, not only in terms of its ultimate goal, but also as regards its influence on current human affairs is impossible to gauge by anything we can immediately see. But this is the essence of our faith and the weight, the weight of its importance. Although we know well enough, these articles of our faith, this kerygma, the proclamation of the good news. We can sometimes forget from long familiarity with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ just how unlikely the manner by which God chose to save us really was. We can imagine easily enough, from a human point of view, various scenarios of saving people who are in trouble. Our movies and popular novels are filled with them. How might the God of heaven all-powerful, all-wise, entirely just, go about invading the territory of Earth, dominated by sin, rebellion, and evil spirits, and bring freedom to the human race. We might think of a frontal assault, a kind of D-Day invasion, with flags flying and the enemy smashed and retreating. We might think of a special ops scenario, where a crack team moves into enemy territory unseen, and pulls off a remarkable rescue. There are all kinds of interesting possibilities we could come up with that map onto what we know of the visible world and what we would expect to happen. What we would probably never have come up with is what God actually did. Yet once we grasp the actual strategy of his rescue mission, we can see why it is that faith is the key to our salvation. It can help us to look at the plight of the human race from God's point of view, so to speak, and see what his strategy was for saving the race. As I was saying, it would have been a reasonable expression of God's majestic rule and a sign of his merciful nature that he might intervene in some way in human history by sending some of his loyal angels to to aid the human race, and deal with the rebel angels who were oppressing them. Such an act would have been beyond human hope, but it would, have been, it would have been appropriate. It would have had a certain fitness to it. It would have been in keeping with God's honor and nature. Yet, in an extraordinary act of condescension, God chose to come himself and do battle for his wayward creatures the father sending his son the word to our aid. That decision alone would have conferred a tremendous importance on our lowly, rebellious race. For a great king to put down his own armor and come to fight on behalf of a portion of his realm that had spurned and despised his rule would show a degree of concern hardly to be believed Yet that isn't the half of what God actually did. Not only did he determine to fight humanity's ancient foe himself, but he took on the very nature of the race he had created, and he came among them as one of them in a kind of veiled disguise. He who was the fountain of all existence took on the limitations of created human nature, even to the point of sharing in the consequences of sin's corruption. He who was changeless and could not suffer became a man so that he would be able to suffer for his lost children. He who was the source of all abundance took on the poverty of fallen humans so that he could make them rich. He who was Lord of life and could not die took on a mortal nature so that he might experience death in place of those who had brought death upon themselves. Probably, probably you have reflected on all this along the way in your pilgrimage of faith. But there is something else to notice. There's something else to notice. It could be said that in his plan to save the human race, God faced a kind of dilemma His problem was not one of simple power or force. He could easily crush Satan and destroy his external rule. But that alone would not save humanity. Men and women had been caught not only by the devil's bondage, but also by the guilt of their own sin. Death and the devil had power over them because of their willing rebellion. And there were claims of justice against that rebellion that could not be ignored. Herein lay the dilemma. How is God to give the human race the opportunity of willingly turning from darkness? And how is the guilt of their sin to be justly done away with? An invasion of force might compel obedience, but that would leave humanity in the posture of the demons, hating the one they were forced to obey and facing the stern sentence that their behavior had merited. How was God to inspire or spark genuine love and faith among those who desired it without compelling their allegiance and destroying their gift of freedom? And how was their guilt to be removed? How were both mercy and justice to be rightly honored, it was an impossible dilemma, but nothing less would truly serve the need. The solution God hit upon was to, was to take on himself the whole of humanity's destiny by joining himself to them such that what they needed to accomplish but could not accomplish a path forward to regaining their innocence and overthrowing their oppressor, he himself would do on their behalf as one of them. By this act, God forever changed the fortunes of humanity, drawing us, our lowly human nature, a handful of dust held together by water into the very heart of the Trinity. And to use a traditional phrase, divinizing the human race, making us divine. God offered humanity an entirely new start by providing a new Adam, as human as the first Adam, but the new Adam united himself to human nature with the divine logos. The new Adam united in himself human nature with the divine logos and extended his participation in the divine nature to all who followed him. In the words of many ancient teachers of the faith, God became man so that men might become God. Once God's dilemma is seen, it becomes clearer to us then why faith is all important. God was not interested in simply exhibiting his existence and presence, shining forth in an indisputable display of glory and might. The demons know his existence well enough, and they hate his rule. God needed to search out those hearts and minds that were looking for him, or that were willing to look for him. To those hearts, those who would receive him, he could begin to show himself and open up to them the riches of the kingdom. But he could not be present in so decisive a manner that those who had no interest in returning to the allegiance of their true king would be compelled against their will. For that would violate the principle of his love and his astonishing reverence for our free will. This explains something of the elusive nature of God's presence among us. For those with eyes to see, the signs of God in his presence are everywhere. They are everywhere. For those who prefer to be independent of him, to live life on their own, to be self-sufficient, the marks of God's presence for them are not so great as to compel an unwilling obedience. Christians know the time will come when the coming of the Son of Man will be like the lightning that flashes and lights up the entire sky then every eye will see him. Then everyone will know, beyond any possibility of doubt, the existence and the greatness of God. But that is the time of judgment. Now is the age of mercy, during which God goes in and out, in and out among the human race, sifting hearts, looking for hearts that will return to him, that will receive and reciprocate his love and then training them in his ways so that they will be ready for that final coming, so that on that day they can stand erect and lift their heads. Our time, this period or age of mercy between the two comings of Christ, is necessarily also the age of faith, the time when God looks for those who are open to his word and will believe what he says, it is why, again and again in the Gospels, Jesus will say to someone who has come to him, your faith has saved you. It's why Jesus says, seek and you will find. This implies, this implies the opposite is also true. If you refuse to seek, you will not find. And it explains this striking episode in Matthew's Gospel. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there and coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is he not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? Where did this man get all this? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When the townspeople of Nazareth looked at Jesus from a human point of view, they saw nothing special. They were blind to the reality of who Christ really was. They had no faith no desire to see beyond the natural realm. And this meant he could not open their minds to his true nature by means of performing mighty works. He could not heal their minds and give them true sight. On the other hand, where faith is present in the gospels, Jesus reveals himself in extraordinary ways. A signal example is the transfiguration. When Jesus was changed before the eyes of Peter, James and John, transfigured before them. The sight dazzled and overwhelmed them. Later on, later when they would see Jesus, look at Jesus with their human eyes and see just a man. But in that moment, afterward, with the eyes of faith, with healed minds, they would see him as the divine son of God and put their faith in him no matter what they were looking at or seeing with their human eyes in that moment. There is a fundamental principle of the spiritual life right here. St. Paul puts it in this way in his first letter to the Corinthians. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, seeing the world truly is not a matter of IQ or of impressive education. Our minds are enlightened when they are opened up by God to the whole of reality. And that comes when we respond to him with faith. This is why the gospel can seem to be foolishness to the wise of this world. It's why Psalm 14 observes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This kind of foolishness has nothing to do with native intelligence. It refers to the blindness of those whose eyes have not been illuminated by God through the gift of faith. There are lots of very intelligent, but very foolish people who know a lot about the visible world, but are blind to the far more important realities of the invisible world. One especially unlikely aspect of God's rescue mission, is noted in the scripture reading from the beginning of our time together tonight. Do you remember? For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ did not come among us as a kind of superman, a perfect person ministering to the imperfect a supremely healthy specimen dispensing medicine to the sick people, a person of immense strength helping the weaklings around him. Instead, he became like one of us, just like us. He contracted all the diseases of humanity, not the moral guilt itself, but all the symptoms of our guilt. And he suffered from them, fought against them, was killed by them and then destroyed them from within by rising from the dead. He developed the antibodies against the deadly disease that humanity was suffering from. And he then shared that medicine with his followers so that they too could triumph over their moral disease and their spiritual death. That's what I meant the first night when I said that Jesus holds the vaccine in his blood. This is the meaning of the crucifixion that death has become the road to life, that in seeming defeat is a resounding victory. And by the way, that appearances are very deceiving and that regular natural sight will not unlock the secrets of the universe. All of this is gloriously beautiful, a supreme relief and the source of all our hope. But from a merely human point of view, It's all foolish nonsense. It can only be perceived with the eyes of faith, with an inner gaze of eyes that have been healed of their cataracts or stigmatism, and can spiritually perceive the way things really are. If we look at our own lives and the goings on of the world in a merely human way, we will be blind to the most important parts of what is real, and we'll find ourselves confused and discouraged life will remain for us then a tragic mystery but if we learn to exercise the habit of faith by gazing on what is unseen according to what has been shown us by God himself then the secrets of the kingdom of heaven will be opened to us again this is why this is why we put the crucifix everywhere the cross of christ is the true measure of the world the cross of christ is the key that interprets all reality. It's like a pair of glasses that allows us to see the way things really are. It is what makes sense of everything that happens in our lives. It is what unlocks the inner meaning of human history. It was with this in mind that the year of Christ's incarnation was put at the absolute center of our calendar because Christ and his strange and surprising and often hidden rescue mission are at the absolute center of all human history. It is also at the very heart and center of the personal story of you and of me.